Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Be great. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll make sure you get one. We want you to have the Word of God in your uh, laps. You know, as I was flipping open to John chapter 12, you can turn there if you have a Bible. As I was flipping open to John chapter 12, um, I noticed that there was a little note in Ephesians chapter 4 in my Bible that has a big heart on it, and then it says, Zoe was here. So, I mean, that's pretty cool when you see that your daughter was in the Bible in Ephesians chapter 4, and then it starts talking about uh, walking in the new life. So I I like that. I like the fact that she was right there uh, looking at the Word of God, and uh, I pray that that would be a, um, a characterization of her life in all our lives, that we'd be in the Word of God, you know, all the time, that we would be here. John chapter 12, turn with me there, if you would please, if you're a guest, we want to welcome you, we also want to welcome all those joining us on our live stream. Uh, If you're here today and this is your first time, or you want to know a little bit more about Calvary Chapel, we have a, a welcome packet at the Welcome Center just directly across from the main sanctuary doors, and uh, you can pick it up there. It just gives you a little bit of information about us. Also, if you're not familiar with Calvary Chapel and kind of what we believe, we're doing a thing this summer called Summer Distinctives, and we're, we're walking through the, the Calvary Chapel distinctives. What makes Calvary Chapel different than other churches? Because, you know, as Pastor Chuck said, if we're the same as everyone else here, then we might as well all merge together and, and work together, but there are differences in, in the way that we do ministry and whatnot, and so if you're not familiar with those things, um, we would welcome you to come on Thursday nights at 6.30. We're taking a break from men and women's Bible studies to kind of uh, to walk through this, uh, this uh, th- there's 12 different, 13 different uh, chapters in this book called Calvary Chapel Distinctives, and uh, we're not really doing book reports, but we, had, we are really just kind of explaining what the, what the distinctives are. Pastor Brian's going to teach this next week. Bri- uh, had uh, Mike Mondary fill in for me last week. I'm sure it was awesome talking about the Holy Spirit. And uh, what a great subject to talk about. Hey, also, I just want to, um, I know many of you guys here were, were blessed yesterday. Were you not? Were you blessed? You know, that all came about by, by this guy, Mike Mondary, right here. This guy, you know, I know he would shake his head and say I didn't do anything. He, he put it all together. And uh, along with Steve Durla and, you know, Scotty Tate smoked all the meat. Man, can we give these guys a, a round of applause for everybody? You know, it, it, takes, it, it takes a lot to put on something like that. That's why people don't do it. And so we just <laughs> we want to thank the people that are willing to step forward because, you know, I've heard nothing but, man, what a great time. I, I got to know guys in the fellowship and, you know, everybody's talking about what a great time they had. And I was just talking to Clay earlier back here just saying, you know, it's great that we come on Sunday mornings and we, um, we want to hear the word of God and we want to fellowship with each other. But, man, we need to be in each other's lives outside of the four walls. And this helps to, to bridge the gap there to build those relationships so that you have brothers that you can call on when you have needs, when, you, when there's things going on in your life. That's what church is about, man. It's about doing life together. And so if you're a woman and if you haven't signed up for the Salad Extravaganza, which is an incredible name, by the way, a Salad Extravaganza next week, there's no guns in it, but uh, um, which I'm sure many of you ladies were kind of like, man, I wish I could have guns, you know, but maybe they'll do that sometime. But, uh, you know, sign up today. 
because, it, you know, it's a great time to get to know the ladies in the, ch- in the church. So, again, what a, what a great time yesterday. I wish I could have been there, but I was driving back from a uh, storm in Florida, tropical storm Cindy. So she's a beast, but we made it back. Not, not you, not you, Cindy, but, you know, yeah. yeah. We, we better just go to our Bible study. John chapter 12. Stand with me if you would. And let's read verses 9 through 11 this morning. Uh, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him being Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, that being Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word this morning and the testimony that stands here today before us of a man that was transformed by you, changed. He was once dead, but he's been made alive. Lord, that we could all identify with Lazarus today. We too We're dead, but you made us alive. We pray this morning, God, that you would help us to gain insight by your word this morning through your spirit, that you would teach us, God, what it means now that we've been made alive in Christ, how we ought to live our lives in such a way that those around us would believe in Jesus. It's our prayer this morning, God. We pray that you would just move in our midst this morning. We thank you in advance for what you're going to do, Lord. Just get me out of the way that you can do your work now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. How many of you have ever been accused of something that you didn't necessarily do, but because you were with somebody that did something? Maybe you were stereotyped in some way, or maybe even indicted for something that you didn't do. You were just associated with that person. I'd venture to guess that all of us have... Uh, been in that place at a time or two in our lives where we were considered guilty by association. When I was in high school, or when I was in junior high school, my mom and dad decided to go out for the evening, and and they thought it was a good idea to leave my brothers and I with our older sister, who was a sophomore in high school. That's always a good idea, by the way, uh, to leave, you know, unbelievers (laughs) in a house with a sophomore in high school Uh, That didn't work out so well. What what ended up happening is immediately when my parents pulled out of the driveway, the party began. And I didn't know there was a party. I was in junior high, but I was kind of like, oh, okay, what's going on here? Neighborhood kids are showing up with booze. Whoa, this is crazy. Well, as the night went on, they started to drink and all of that. And, and, you know, I, I just want you to know that I separated myself, of course, and I went into my bedroom, and I sat there the whole evening thinking, man, these guys are going to be in trouble when my parents get home. Well, my, my sister ended up drinking a little bit more than she should have, so there's no way that they're getting away with this. Like, there is absolutely no way. She is what we call wasted, all right? She is just totally just out of her gourd, right? And so I go to my brothers, my, two, my younger brother, my older brother, my sister and I say, man, you guys are in so much trouble. Little did I know that I was in trouble too. 
I, I, my parents came home, and, and they called us all in the front room, and then they were just, you know, one, one down the line, one to the next. And it came to me, and my parents went off on me like I was participating in it. I had nothing to do with it, but I was guilty by association. That's what happened. I was there. It was a bummer. That's what it's like to be a friend of Jesus. You're guilty by association. Listen, the world uh, considers Jesus guilty. They don't like Jesus. They condemn Jesus. And because you bear the name Christian, you too are also guilty. You're condemned because of Christ. It's nothing personal, of course. They're just trying to keep the riffraff off the streets, you know. I mean, Jesus went about just doing all these great things, you know, in the world, but the scribes and Pharisees saw him as such a nuisance that they wanted to get rid of him, and they also wanted to get rid of anything that uh, looked like him. And so, you know, we, we understand why they would be that way. Christians are so narrow-minded, you know. They're so hateful, just like Jesus was, right? Wrong. They had an incorrect perspective of Jesus. It was a sinful perspective. Listen, if you are a believer in the first century, uh, you are liable to pay a great cost to, become a, to be a Christian. If you bear the name Christ back in that day, you were in big trouble. In fact, people were seeking your lives. Many people... Uh, back in the early church, gave their lives up. Normal people like you and I, not just leaders, but, but simple Christian followers, Christ followers, those who, wanted, who loved Jesus and wanted to follow him. They gave up their lives. You can pick up the book of Fox's book of martyrs, and you can read of the many of the leaders who died for the cause of Christ. They did nothing except for spread good, loved people, ministered to those who were hurting, and yet they found themselves condemned. They were guilty by association. According to an article that I just read uh, regarding the persecuted church, our researcher David B. Barrett, Barrett puts the number of Christian martyrs since the time of Jesus, listen to this, it's 70 million, 70 million Christians, you know, have given their lives up for Christ. According to Christianity Today, uh, they reported between the years of 1900 and 1990, an average of 300,000 believers have been martyred every year. That's an estimated 27 million Christians martyred for their faith in a 90-year period. That's a lot of people. These people didn't do anything wrong, just like Jesus. And yet they were condemned to death, just like he was. And why would this happen? Why in the world would people die because they were associated with Christ? Well, Jesus said it. He told his disciples in John chapter 15, just a couple chapters over from where we are here in verses 20 through 22. He said, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on, listen, account of my name, because they do not know who sent me. If I had not come and spoke to them, they would have not been, listen, guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Why in the world does the world hate Jesus so much? It has everything to do with the fact that he is convicting the world of their sin. The world doesn't want to be convicted of their sin. And my guess is, when you were a non-believer, you didn't want to be convicted by your sin either, did you? 
you were sitting there with, like I was, and you heard the message of the cross, and you heard what Jesus did for you, and you say, but I'm a good person. I'm not hurting anyone. You don't want to hear about your sin. You want to hear about the fact that you have failed epically and that you deserve condemnation. No, no, we don't want to talk about that. And so the world will just say, I don't like anything that tells me that I'm wrong. And Jesus, of course, he is the bearer of truth. And he brings the truth even when it hurts. But it's always in love. So these people, they clearly don't understand the wages of sin, do they? The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. But God understands that. So what does he do? He sends his son into a world that is perishing to help them. And we, collectively as a people, we kill him, and then we kill anything that represents him. Anything at all. It's sad. But that is the truth. That is the world. There is a, there is a revolt against Jesus Christ and anything that looks like Jesus. So that means there's a revolt against you. You can expect to be met by the world with resistance, with even violence at times. You can expect that because Jesus said that. And we are considered, we are now living under the same noose as Jesus Christ did and all of the believers that followed him. We are guilty by association. And we see the beginning of that right here in John chapter 12, verses 9 through 11. We see it all start right there with this man named Lazarus. Lazarus was one of the... Now, Jesus would, you know, had raised other people from the dead, but Lazarus, for some reason, maybe because he was a little more vocal, maybe it's because he stood for Christ more, for some reason, they wanted to kill Lazarus too because he represented the messianic power of Jesus Christ. He was the proclamation that Jesus was the Messiah. And so the world... The religious people in the world wanted to condemn him. By the way of chronology, we are entering the last week of Jesus' life here. Just in chapter or verse 1 there of chapter 12, it tells us that it's six days before the Passover. Six days before Jesus will fulfill the part of the 70-week prophecy by Daniel, found in Daniel chapter 9. In verse 26, it says this, And after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. The anointed one is Jesus, the Messiah. And it says after 62 weeks, it's a time frame from the time that Jerusalem was restored until the coming of Messiah. There was a period of time. And then 62 weeks until he would be cut off. 62 weeks, Jesus Christ would after that period of time from the restoration of Israel, Jesus would come and he would be crucified. He would be cut off from the world. It was prophesied. This was in the Old Testament. This was in the scriptures. The scribes, the Pharisees, everybody that lived during that time that, that, that went to the synagogue, they heard Isaiah chapter 53. They heard about the crucified uh, crucifixion that would happen according to Psalm 22. They understood that the Messiah... Uh, it, well, it said that the Messiah would be cut off, but they didn't understand that. They had their own perceptions, just as we do at times. We believe beyond what the Word says sometimes, don't we? 
And yet, that wouldn't be the end of the story. We know. Because the Bible also tells us that there would be a resurrection. That Jesus Christ would not stay dead, but after three days he would rise again from the dead. Psalm 16.10. David wrote it. He said, For you will not abandon my soul in Sheol, or let your Holy One, speaking of Jesus, see corruption. Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, that he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. It was the third day that everything changed. The cross is, is the, the payment of sin for the believer. But the victory lies in the resurrection. It was on the third day when Jesus Christ rose from the dead that everything changed. You see, on the third day, Jesus Christ put his stake in the ground. He put his flag in the, in, on the mount. He said, victory is yours. So you have it there. The cross gives us hope, but the resurrection gives us victory. And we're thankful for that this morning. And so here we are, just six days away from the cross. We find the Jews are conspiring to kill Jesus, and not just him, but also those who represent him. Lazarus, you and I, again, we are types of Lazarus. We have been, we were once dead, but now made alive, amen? You were once dead. But when you came to Christ, he raised you up. You were now made alive. To walk in newness of life, the Bible tells us. Not that we're the same person because we've been raised. We've been what we call born again. That's why when you talk to people on the street and, you know, because the word Christian doesn't really mean, you have to get beyond that label because that means so much to so many. Jehovah Witnesses call themselves Christians. Mormons call themselves Christians. There's cults that use that broad term to, to, to um, you know, deceive the many that would come. So we have, to, we have to use other terms like, are you born again? Whoa. That sounds Pentecostal. <laughs> Actually, it's biblical. It's right in the Bible. Jesus told Nicodemus, you have to be born again in order to enter the kingdom of God. It's not enough to come to church. It's not enough to do good things. It's not enough to know scripture. You have to be born again. The Bible says if the spirit of God is not in you, if you are not sealed with the spirit of God, you are not his. And so therefore, you have no hope for heaven. But because Jesus came, he died, he rose again from the dead, you too now can have the same thing. You can have eternal life with him. And that's why he came. So now that we're born again, now that we're like Lazarus, we've been raised from the dead, what do we do when we face angry mobs? What do we do when we face those who are persecuting Jesus? Because they're not persecuting you. It, it's amazing to me that we can be associated with Jesus. Is that amazing to you? That, that, that somehow the world would associate you and me with Jesus. That's because he's in you. And it's him living through you that they see. How do we deal with the persecutions that will come in our lives? Jesus said they would come. He told us that. Listen, you're going to encounter people that don't like you because you're a Christian. Plain fact. doesn't matter how nice you are to them. It doesn't matter what you say to them. It doesn't matter how, uh, you know, kind you are. The reality is that they hate the Jesus in you. 
You can't change that, but the Bible tells us to do all that we can do to live at peace with all men, even those who would persecute us. So how do we deal with this? Well, I think that we have some insights here in these couple verses in John chapter 12. The first thing, if you're taking notes, is we should consider it an honor to be associated with Jesus. Look at verse 9 there. It says, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Notice with me it says that a large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there. Where is he? Well, we learned a couple weeks ago that Jesus is at the house of Simon the leper, who was a leper who is no longer a leper. He was transformed. He was changed somehow. Maybe we believe that Jesus maybe healed him of that leprosy. Yet he was there at his house, and it was in Bethany. We saw a a couple weeks ago that Martha, she was doing what she does best, right? She was serving. That's what she does. Lazarus, he was reclining. Mary, she was worshiping. She came to anoint Jesus. They were all there in Bethany. And it's there that the Jews would come. Notice, it says they learned he was there. That word in the Greek is gnosko, to learn. And it means this, to acquire information by whatever means, but often with the implication of personal involvement or experience. The Jews had already made plans to kill Jesus. In fact, they, 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 they had already, we'll, we'll read it in a second, they said, listen, when the Passover comes, we're going to be looking for Jesus and we're going to arrest him and we, we are going to kill him. It's the perfect time to kill the Lamb of God. When we're remembering the Lamb that was slain, the blood was posted on the doorpost to cover, uh, as the angel of death would, co- would come over, it would cover them, protect them. It was by the blood. What a perfect time. No coincidence there. In just a few verses before John chapter 12 here, in John chapter 11, look up there with me in verses 56 and 57. It says this. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he he should let them know so that they might arrest him. And so they were... They had already had plans. They were looking to arrest Jesus. They were looking to kill him. And they had sent spies throughout Jerusalem waiting on Jesus. Now, understand, Jerusalem would swell to maybe up to 2 million people, they thought. 2 million people would be in Jerusalem. And so these spies, and and it would be over a period of time, people would get there, you know, maybe weeks or months before uh, uh, this would happen. And so there was preparations being made for Jesus. And they were wondering if he would even show up. Because they understood that he knew that they were going to kill him. And that's why Jesus' disciples go, are you insane? You want to go to Jerusalem? Are you crazy, man? But Jesus had a mission. And he didn't allow fear to stop him from, from accomplishing that mission. They are in Bethany. They're seeking to kill Jesus. And notice they're going to come to Bethany, not just on his account, but also on the account of Lazarus, the one whom Jesus had been ra- had raised from the dead. Oh, the glorious truth of being associated with Jesus because of the work that he's done. Uh, you might recall the work of Lazarus. You know, when Jesus was in the wilderness and, and Lazarus was sick and they sent uh, messengers, Ma- Mary and Martha had sent messengers to Jesus and said, hey, your friend Lazarus is sick and, 
by the time that the messengers even reached Jesus, he was dead. He was gone. And the Bible tells us that Jesus stayed a couple days, two days more. And then he traveled back there. So it was a four-day period. When he arrives at, at, uh, here at the tomb in Bethany there where, where he was, it was four days since Lazarus had been dead, they said. So the messengers probably immediately after they left, he died. They didn't even know. They came back. And, of course, he's met with Mary and Martha, and they're Martha first, and she's trying to get her head wrapped around the resurrection and all, and Jesus is saying, listen, your, your brother's going to live again. Don't worry. You just trust me. And Mary comes, and Lord, if you would have just been here, you know, like we all do, Lord, if you would have just done this, I wouldn't have gone through that, and yet we don't understand the big picture of what God's doing, do we? And yet in this story, we find out that it's for the glory of God and for the glory of Jesus that, that Jesus would wait two more days, that he would be able to reveal himself yet again who he really is. And so after he comes, he, he, he asks for the tomb to be opened, and there lies the lifeless body of, of Lazarus. And Jesus, he just calls into that empty tomb. He calls into that tomb where there's that lifeless body. Lazarus, he knows his name. He calls into the tomb, and all of a sudden, Lazarus, come out. And at the command of the Son of God, Lazarus, all wound up in those burial cloths, comes walking out. An unbelievable moment. No doubt everybody there is in total shock, except for Jesus. You know what I find interesting is that right before he opened the tomb, it says he wept. He wept. He knew what he was going to do. He understood he was going to raise him from the dead. Why was he weeping? Because he understood the ramifications of sin in the lives of these people. And he understood the pain and the anguish that accompanies Sin in our lives. And it was that that caused Jesus to weep. He weeps for you and I today, no doubt. As he watches the ramifications, does he know what's going to happen? I think so. I know what's going to happen. You know what's going to happen because it's in the Word of God. Jesus knows what's going to happen, and yet here we find ourselves in pain and anguish going through all of these difficult things as a result of sin. Maybe not even your sin. But it's a result of sin and Jesus weeps and he sees you in your pain and your anguish and he takes account. And he, and he take, takes account of every tear that you cry. He understands every pain that's going through your heart. And he's calling you by name even now. And he's just saying, just come to me. As he did to Lazarus that day, come, come to me. You just come to me and I will console you. There wasn't a second that didn't go by that Jesus didn't know what was going to happen. And yet he wept there. He calls Lazarus to come out. Lazarus comes out. He is no longer dead, but he is among the living. What an extraordinary moment to reveal that Jesus Christ was, in fact, the Messiah once again. He had done so many signs. It was so clear. Nobody could do that except for God. 
Nobody could do that. Even as the paralytic came before Jesus and they, you know, his buddies ripped the roof off and they lowered uh, this paralytic down before Jesus and he said, take up your mat. What did he say? Your sins are forgiven. When he said that, the Pharisees and the scribes that were there, they said, who can forgive sins but God? Exactly. Who can? God himself. Only God. Jesus Christ has authority over death. In fact, Jesus said, you know, this temple, you know, is going to be torn down in three days. I'll take it back up. He took his own life back up because he has power over sin and he has power over death. The name of Jesus. It was incredible to be Lazarus, wasn't it? You imagine? To be the one hopping out of that tomb? What would your life be like? Imagine that for a moment. You were dead and you were made alive and you come walking out in these tomb clothes and you're going, oh my gosh, what just happened? I was just in Abraham's bosom a second ago. What's going on? Where am I? I can't see. I've got stuff wrapped around my face. I'm in the dark. Did I go to the abyss? Where am I? Lazarus, listen to my voice. And as they unwrap him, there he sees Jesus. Wait a second. Is that Mary? Is that Martha? Are they all dead? What's going on here? Listen, it's not so far-fetched to think that way because that was you. That was me. We were the Lazarus that have come out of the tomb. And that is a miracle, by the way. The fact that anyone can call upon his name and be saved. How incredible that is. And yet it's the work of Christ in your life. It's the work of Christ in Lazarus' life that now the world sees and they associate that with Jesus. Listen, it is an incredible honor to be associated to Jesus because what it says is that you've been touched by Jesus, that he's living inside of you. That there's something going on inside of you that the world sees that reflects Jesus Christ. That's our goal, folks. That's the point. It is incredible to, to be associated with Jesus. And here we find Lazarus, the workmanship of Christ, being associated with Jesus. They're not just coming to see Jesus. They're coming to see the, Laz- the Jesus and Lazarus. And you know what? When the world comes to you, they're not coming to just see Jesus. They're coming to see the Jesus in you. They want to see Jesus being lived out in your life. What an indictment that nobody would come. What an indictment that nobody would know that I'm a Christian. What an indictment that the world would look at me and they would just pass me off as being just like them. I've been raised from the dead. I have a newness of life. I've, now I am associated with Christ. What an honor. And what an indictment not to be. Secondly, we see we should praise God that we are worthy to suffer persecution for Christ. Look at verse 10. It says, So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. The only reason that someone would want to harm you or I is if we were living in such a way as to bother them. If, we, if our lives were lived in such a way that it reflected the character and the nature of Jesus. That was the only reason somebody would want to bother you because uh, newsflash, you're not that cool. Sorry, I hope that doesn't offend you. I'm not that cool. The world's not looking at me. When I walk in a room, the, world, world, the room doesn't stop. 
whoa, he's here. <laughs> I know that, com- that comes in a newsflash to me. No, I'm just kidding. But, but the reality is that we're not that special. But Jesus is. And when Jesus enters a room, the room stops. When Jesus stands up to speak, the room listens. He's in you. He's speaking through you. He's being lived out through your life. Listen, I have no doubt in my mind that from the day that Lazarus rose from the dead, that his life, he was never once again silent about who Jesus was in his life. That he was never silent again about who Jesus was in his life and what he had done for him. I mean, it's amazing to me that I can go through the week and not even think about the miracle that Christ has raised me from the dead and forgiven me for my sins, and now I have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. That blows my mind, and yet so oftentimes I don't even think about it. So oftentimes I don't even allow that truth to to penetrate. I'm so focused on what I got going on in my life that I don't, uh, don't recall the fact that Jesus Christ is living out through me. Listen, I I can imagine that Lazarus had any ear he wanted. Wait a minute. You're that guy that was dead for four days? Come here. I want to talk to you. Tell me what it was like to be dead. Isn't that the question everybody wants to know? I mean, when somebody has an out-of-body experience, it's everybody's flocking to that person. They want to know what it's like to die, what it's like after death, because everybody's afraid. Everybody's afraid of death. Because nobody knows. And so everybody's scrambling, looking for answers. What happens after you die? To some, they say nothing. And yet there's evidence that says something else. The Bible tells us that when we are absent from the body, it's to be present with the Lord for the believer. But for the unbeliever, what happens? It's scary. There's There's a holding place waiting until the final judgment comes. The Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that at that second death, when Jesus judges the world, the great white throne judgment, that he will take, uh, you know, the heavens and the earth and everything, he will cast them into the lake of fire along with all of those who have rejected Jesus Christ. He doesn't want that for people. He desires for people to live. That's why he came. And I can imagine the, 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 the questions that Lazarus was being asked about. And I can guarantee you that he didn't forget to tell them about Jesus. I promise you he didn't forget to tell them about Jesus. That was the primary reason he was alive. It was because of Jesus. Some of you know what that's like. Some of you, your life was going down such a road that had it continued on, you would not be here today. You were a wreck you were destined for destruction, and yet somehow, some way, Jesus Christ, you had an encounter with him. He changed your life, changed the course of your trajectory, and now you're here. And now you're alive. And yeah, your life may not be perfect, but it's better than it was. And the place that you're heading is far greater than the place that you were. And so it's something that we ought to rejoice over. But, but understand, with all of that comes the condemnation of the world. Because Jesus said a, a, a servant is not greater than his master. When the Pharisees and the scribes first heard the news about 
Lazarus, they said this in John chapter 11, verses 45 through 54. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, speaking of Jesus. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. How about just believe in him? How about just believe? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for the nation, not for the nation only, but also to gather into, the, into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. They wanted to kill Jesus because they were afraid of what would happen if they didn't. They were more afraid of losing these worldly things, their city, their position, their country, more than they were about seeing the Son of God standing before them. That tells you that it's, the, it's their sin that they were holding on to. They were coveting this world. They were coveting the things of the world. And they were fearful that Jesus was going to get in the way of it. How sad. The things that they missed. And it was that reason that they also sought to kill Lazarus because he is living proof of the handiwork of the Lord. If they could kill Jesus and those who represent his handiwork, then they could get rid of Christ altogether. And they could go on with their sinful lives and not have to worry about it. Listen, that is a continual issue that's going on today. The world is continuing trying to wipe off the face of the earth Jesus and anyone that looks like him. We see later in Acts chapter 4, verses 13 through 23, we see Peter and John before the council. And they're standing there and they're being accused of being with Jesus. Here they say these guys are uneducated men. They're common men. And, and they were astonished by what they had seen and heard from them. And they recognized that they'd been with Jesus. It's Jesus in them that's the problem. And they, it goes on to say that um, down here in verse 19, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what you have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because, the, because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Now, what happened there was they healed a guy. And the scribes and Pharisees saw the works of Christ again. And they said, oh, this Jesus is never going to, we're never going to be rid of him. Now these guys are doing the same things as Jesus was. So they wanted to get rid of them, and, but they couldn't at that point in time because the people were praising God to, to see this man who had, been, who had been crippled for his whole life had come to no longer be crippled. Listen, you and I are testimonies of the power of Christ 
working in the life. And when people see you, somehow they want to believe in Jesus. I don't get it. I don't understand it. It's Christ in us that they see. And when they see that, they, they are being wooed to God. Can you believe that God can use you in that way? It's unbelievable. But he does. So we should praise him no matter what we have to go through for him to be seen, even through persecution. Because the Bible tells us, or it, it's, it's kind of a premise of the Bible. It's not in the Bible, but the idea is that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's why the church grows. When people see the suffering of God's people and they say they're willing to give up their life for this thing, for, for, for this man who, who came and supposedly lived and died and rose again from the dead, he did. They're giving up their lives for him thousands of years later. And it's amazing. And it causes people to come to Christ even today. Do you know the Christians that are living in, over in, in uh, you know, the, the, the ISIS-infested world, many of the ISIS members are becoming to Christ. Why? Because of the Christ and the people that are standing firm in their faith and giving up their lives for Christ. So rejoice if you're considered worthy to suffer persecution. Rejoice in that. I know it's hard, and I know that it, that's a theological thing, and it's easy to think that, but how do I practically work that out in my life? Well, think about the implications. Think about the reason why you're being persecuted. It's because they see Jesus, and that's what we rejoice over. Rejoice over the fact that my life is being lived out in such a way that they could see Jesus in me. Praise God for that. Lord, use me all the more. Open up my life in such a way, God, that you can be seen, even if it means harm for me or suffering for me. Peter said this in 1 Peter 4, 13 through 16, but rejoiced in so, ever, so far as you were shared with Christ's sufferings. I've got to reread that. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you were insulted for the name of Christ, you were blessed because the spirit of glory and the God rests upon you. But let uh, none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. What an honor to suffer for the sake of Christ. Listen, may our lives be lived out in such a way. I, I believe that Lazarus' life was being lived out in such a way that he was such a powerful testimony of the work of Jesus Christ in his life. Lastly, we see that when we're guilty by association, we, we must always point people to Jesus. Look at verse 11. Because on account of him, speaking of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away believing in Jesus. It was on account of Lazarus that people were coming to Christ. The work that Jesus had done was so undeniable in Lazarus that it caused others to come to Christ. And oh, that our lives would be transformed in that way. That people would see us and it would generate desire to, to get what we have. Listen, when you are asked why you are the way you are, your response should be, it's because of the grace of God that I am that I am. That's what Paul said. The Apostle Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, who is used so mightily by God, said these words in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 through 10, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I am persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, 
and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. The grace of God that Paul is talking about is Christ. We're saved by grace, God's unmerited favor for us. That, practically speaking, is the fact that God sent his son from heaven to earth to die for your sin. That's the grace of God. He gave you that. Unmerited. You didn't deserve it. He freely gave you his son. It's the grace of God. And it's the grace of God that people see in us that creates this interest. They're just like, whoa, I just don't understand why you're the way you are. It's called the grace of God. It's God's unmerited favor for me that he could take me, that he could fill me, that he could live through me. That's the grace of God. Listen, I hope that's not a newsflash to you today, that it's by the grace of God that you are what you are. It's not something you inherently are. It's something that God makes you through Christ. You are his grace to the world. You are continuing on. You're the ambassador of Christ, that you are extending the freedom of Christ to other people in the world. That's our call. We're all missionaries. We're all called to do that. I believe Lazarus lived out the grace of God in his life. And as we look at this account here, we see the fact that it was on account of him that many were going away and believing in Jesus. My prayer is that that could be said about us. That it's on account of you, or you, or you, or you. It's on account of you that people are believing in Christ. Yes, the Holy Spirit draws people. We understand this. But there is a tangible evidence of Jesus Christ working in this world, and you're it. You're the ones. And so if you're not living different than the world, then the world has nothing to look at, and they don't understand the grace of God, and so they say, what's the point? I don't understand that. I don't want that. You're just like me. you got as many problems as I do. But when they see you work through your issues, like a Christian should, trusting God, believing in God, having confidence, knowing that God is going to see you through, not freaking out. When you're, when you're abiding in Christ in the most painful, anguishing moments of your life and the world sees that, that is when you are the loudest voice for Christ. Listen, Jesus, his loudest message to the world was when he was hanging on the cross. That was when the megaphone was on for Jesus Christ. And he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he died. He was crucified for you and I. Sinless. Did nothing wrong. And so as we live our lives out that way, sacrificially, willing to be pinned to the tree as Jesus was for the sake of those who don't know him, that God could use you that way. Always point people to Christ no matter what's going on in your life. No matter what you're encountering, be the mirror that points people to Jesus. And yeah, we fail at times doing that. Yeah, we get caught up and we get fearful. But you know what? Pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and keep going. Don't allow that to define you. The moments that you fail in this life, what defines you is what you do when you fail. What defines you is how you respond to the failure in your life. 
So pick yourself up, go back out there, and be a mirror for Christ. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just this testimony of the grace of God in a man named Lazarus who was dead but was made alive by the simple words of Jesus. Lord, we pray that our lives would would reflect the same nature and character as, as Lazarus's did, Lord, that the power of what Jesus can do in a life that's surrendered to him. Lord, we pray that you would help us today to not be wishy-washy about our faith. God, that we would, today, we would put our stake in the sand and we would say, I'm living for Christ because what we do in this life matters. How we live our lives matters. The world is watching, and yeah, it's not all on us. There's not, we're one small part of this big thing that God is doing in the world, but let us do our part, Lord. Help us not to fail in our part. We know you will never fail. Lord, we're the weakest link in the chain, and we need your spirit today. And we need you to empower us in miraculous ways, God, to overcome the fears that we have, to overcome the, the bondage that we're, we're entangled in, God, to, to make, rights, uh, make wrongs right, Lord. We need your help this morning to do these things, to be the testimony of your grace in our life. And Lord, I know you're dealing with some people this morning. And God, it's, it's your grace that we're here. You don't want to condemn. You want people to move forward. You call us out on our sin because you want us to be made right. And so this morning, if that's you, and God is calling you out and he's speaking to you specifically this morning, and, and you know what it is, today you just need to turn it over to him, whatever that might be. If you're not truly living for Christ today and there's some things in your life that are holding you back, you need to release those things to him this morning. You say, Lord, here I am, all of me, as Isaiah did. Send me. And you just proclaim that to him this morning. And if you don't know Christ this morning and you're not in relationship with him and you're like, don't know anything about that, then you come forward this morning. And there's some guys that will be down here to pray with you. And they'll help you come to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Listen, if you need some things to go, if you need to do some work, some business before the Lord this morning, come to the altar and do that business. And if you want prayer, you step forward to those that are standing here. Uh, they'll pray with you. If not, you just kneel down at the sides and you just pray. But let the Lord move. Let the Spirit move. Lord, we love you. We thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.